Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans. It was probably written by Paul from Corinth, and it was sent to a congregation he did not know and did not start, the one in Rome, where there would have been a very large community of Jews, but of course, lots and lots of Gentiles as well. It seems he wrote it in order to make friends and influence people, chiefly so he could continue on in his Gentile missionary journeys on the way to Spain, maybe also to shore up some of his credibility over against people in Palestine who were still a little bit not certain of his apostolicity vis-a-vis going to the Gentiles. It is the first of Paul's epistles in the New Testament. Um, interesting note, they are arranged, are arranged in descending order of size, not in any other particular order. And it is also the last one that he wrote of his authentic epistles. For Lutherans and for many Protestants, it is also in some ways the central text of the New Testament. It is the one that radiates out in every direction and influences what we say and think about all other things. So when I got to seminary, we often preface these with our seminary or graduate school story. So here's mine. I was very excited to take a course on Romans. I had read it lots of times, but it is a very dense book and tightly argued. It is not easy for the average, even well-educated churchgoer to pick apart what it's all about. So I went into this class very eager to finally kind of crack Romans open. Well, Dad, (laughs) Uh, it was a bit of a loss for me, I have to say. This is not against the teacher in particular, uh, though the teacher was a student of James Dunn, who we mentioned on our last episode. The problem was is that the class was really pitched towards American evangelicals in recovery, let us say. And the slogan of the class was, it's about God, stupid. And I remember thinking, well, what the heck else would it be about? Like, I didn't understand what the point of contrast was. And and then, like, sort of like what was whispered around the edges of the class was maybe Luther was wrong. So I was like, oh, this is disturbing. I should at least pay attention to this. But the more I listened, the more, well, first of all, I had no idea what the problem was that this class was solving, but it was obviously solving it for a lot of people. Um, But secondly, that what they thought Luther was was not in any way recognizable to me as what I thought Luther was. This was not my Luther that they thought was wrong. And I think that goes dead to what you were telling us in the last episode about the ways that um, the new perspective has criticized Luther, but what they're not, they're not really criticizing Luther. They're criticizing German Lutheran Rudolf Boltzmann. Anyway, but what that's said to me was that you can't do any biblical exegesis, no matter how dispassionate a scholar you are, without bringing confessional and theological commitments to the table, that you it's just not possible to fully detach yourself. And that was so evident in this class. And because it wasn't addressing my particular theological or confessional commitments, the, the scholarship on Romans just failed to, you know, interface with me or get a grip on me in any interesting way. But then, in preparation for this episode, uh, I read, finally, Ernst Kesemann's very famous commentary on Romans, which is amazing and fabulous, and I loved it, and N.T. Wright was totally correct that that should be your, your Desert Island book. However, Dad, I have to admit, there was a point, well, more than one point, in which I said to myself, okay, does Kesemann's commentary read the way it does because Kesemann was a Lutheran? Or does Luther read the way he does because he was actually such a good reader of Romans? So lay it out there for me, Dad. What do you think the answer is? <laughs> well, I have to begin, so Sarah, by telling a few anecdotes of my own. As I've mentioned on the podcast before, I was um, a student of J. Lewis Martin, who was probably Ernst Kaseman's best American friend. And uh, it was through Martin that I devoured uh, the various writings of Kazeman in English translation. And I remember when the word came out that Kazeman's commentary on Romans was being translated into English and would be published by Erdman's. And uh, we graduate students at Union just kind of queued up waiting for the shipment of the book to arrive. And I can remember that standing online waiting to get our hands on Kazeman's commentary on Romans and how I went home and devoured it in a couple of days. I totally agree with your enthusiasm about the commentary, and we'll get into the details of that as we go along. 
I would just like to point out that there's uh, this this Lutheran reading of Romans is not only Luther's. Uh, the first Protestant systematic theology, Melanchthon's Lotzai Communis, is in fact structured around the Book of Romans. A, a Melanchthon takes the Book of Romans as the outline in which he uh, organizes his various topics of biblical teaching. And even in our own day and age, uh, Stephen Paulson has just published a book called Lutheran Theology, which is basically a very sophisticated re-preaching or re-proclamation of the Book of Romans. But I mean, Melanchthon and Paulson, I think, are also Lutherans like Gazemon. So is that is that helping the cause? We're hurting it. You know, when I and then I wanted to mention finally my last anecdote. When Kaseman came to Union Seminary when I was a graduate student, and uh, I met him personally after the talk. That's cool. I didn't know that you ever met him. Yeah, I met him personally. He was a rather short man. I remember that. Such an intense, fiery personality. And uh, of course, he had spoken in German. Uh, he his English was very not very good. And so uh, we had listened to him speak, and then I very foolishly decided to start speaking to him in German. And I said something like, And he said, he, I'm going to just say it in English, uh, he said back to me in rapid fire, yes, but the Lutheran Church hates me. <laughs> they just hate me. They don't want anything to do with me. Wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and that's because Kaseman was a genuine product of the confessing church. Ah. And he was just adamantly opposed to the return to normalcy after World War II, in which the model of the Volkskirche was reestablished, when he felt that the whole struggle of the confessing church was a struggle against the Volkskirche, the people's church model, based on, based on ethnicity rather than on the confession of Christ as Lord. So anyway, that's my Kaseman anecdote. Wow. There's a lot more to Kaseman's story. You know, his daughter was murdered in Argentina by the fascist thugs. Oh, I didn't know that. In the 70. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, well, we can get into his biography some other time, but that's enough to get us tantalized here. Okay, well, so in, <laughs> we did two episodes on, on Mark, which is also 16 chapters, but narrative and uh, easier to uh, to get through the story. So I think to open this up um, for listeners, we're going to concentrate mainly on the first half of the book um, right now, which is Paul's whole development of the idea of the righteousness of God. And Okay, so here's here's the basic layout of the first half of the book. So there's, of course, the introductory section, which lets us know that this is, in fact, a letter. And then the way Kazamon breaks it down is into uh, three major sections. So the first is the need for the revelation of the righteousness of God. Um, that means revelation to people who are not aware of it or don't see it properly. That's in from chapter 118 to 320. Then the next section is the righteousness of God as the righteousness of faith. So this is where the kind of uh, the stakes are ratcheted up because there isn't really disagreement about God being righteous, but how righteousness is received or recognized is through faith. That's Paul's polemical point. And then in the um, third section, which is um, 5 1 to 839, Kazamon calls this the righteousness of faith as a reality of eschatological freedom. That means freedom from the power of death, freedom from the power of sin, and the end of the law through the power of the Spirit. And what struck me, Dad, in reading this, um, maybe like the kind of the one uh, takeaway thing the you know, when you off, often when you read something or hear a lecture, there's like one thing that really sticks with you after it. And what struck me right. in Kazaman's argument is that people often take, you know, from First uh, John or whatever, that the main thing about God is that God is love. And Kazaman says that for Paul, of course, God is loving, but actually the main thing, the discriminating, defining thing about God is that God is righteousness, is God is righteous and God is righteousness itself. In fact, Christ is righteousness and righteousness for us. And that is the predominating theme of Paul's theology as in doctrine of God and his Christology and everything else. And it is directly out of that, the righteousness of God, that um, the whole argument of Romans, which is the justification, which means making righteous of the ungodly flows. Um, 
what I mean that that's just not that's not pop popularly preached anymore. <laughs> that's not how we right. that's not how we sell our religion. So uh, tell us what you think about that. Well, I think it's really interesting because curiously in the contemporary church with a great deal of interest in social justice and we have in English these two words, one from Anglo from the Saxon heritage and the other from the Latin heritage. Uh, justice comes from Latin justitia, and righteousness comes from, you know, right, the right, recht in German, and so forth. We have the two words in there. The the Greek word dikaiazune, righteousness or justice, um, is translated by either of these words, and that it can be very confusing for us in English. And what Kaysman wants to say, I think, is that the, the main... Uh, attribute of the God of the scriptures, of the Lord of the scriptures, according to Israel, is God's salvation-bearing righteousness. God is the one who in his righteousness keeps faith and brings salvation to his people when they are in trouble. So righteousness is always God's fidelity to his promises, breaking in and acting in in history. And of course, Paul uh, takes this uh, heritage apocalyptically. It's important to recognize, you quoted Kazeman in English, the revelation of the righteousness of God as the leading motif. But this is in Greek, the apocalypse, the apocalypse of the righteousness of God. So this is God who in his fidelity to his promises is breaking in to act righteously, that is, to save his humanity, redeem his humanity from the powers of sin and death. Right. So this picks up on themes we've talked about before. So one is the salvation history versus apocalyptic. So for Paul, the the salvation history continuity is, in fact, the same as you said, the fidelity of the creator to his promises. And so the creator of all, the one God, chose the people of Israel and to them through the prophets revealed his, his gospel, the coming of his power in righteousness. And so that's where the continuity lies. But the apocalypse lies in his actually doing it in the person of Jesus Christ through this crucified and risen Lord, which then um, disrupts much of the business of usual without invalidating the promises by grafting the Gentiles into the into the chosen people. Yeah, I would say, yes, what you say, of course, I think is true. But I would add this nuance that it, salvation history is not the subject and revelation or apocalypse the predicate. It's the other way around. Mm, mm. It's, it's apocalypse uh, that reveals the saving fidelity of God. And then in the light or in the grip of that inbreaking righteousness of God, uh, one can survey, look, look to the past and see, ah, this is how the promise long ago is now fulfilled. One does not, not vice versa, make some kind of scheme of salvation history, the, the subject, and then say, ah, here's a revelation of it, and there's a revelation of it, and so forth. Okay, that's really helpful. Yeah, good, good. Good, and so I wanted to read a quotation on this topic from the commentary by Kaysman. The Apostles' Christology treats nothing other than Christ, as in the full sense, God's gift for us, given for us, and yet no less our Lord. The apostle knows no gift which does not also challenge us to responsibility, thereby showing itself as power over us, lordship, and creating a place of service for us on the earth. Conversely, he knows no God who can be isolated from his creation, only the God who is manifest in his creation in judgment and grace. With recourse to the Lord acclamation, we may summarize the whole message of the epistle in the brief and paradoxical statement that the Son of God is, as our curious, our Lord, the one eschatological gift of God to us, and herein is revealed simultaneously both God's legitimate claim on us and also our salvation. So that makes the event of Jesus Christ as that event is concretely uh, apocalypsed, uh, put into action and therefore made visible, palpable, perceptible to faith, is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
who is both uh, the one who gives himself for us and thereby becomes the Lord over us. Yeah, I was really struck by how much, I mean, Kazaman helped me see how much the Lordship of Christ is, is, it's not simply, it, it is simply proclaimed as a done deal, and yet it's also the thing that is under dispute. And that's why there is such a thing as, as mission and uh, discipleship or witness or ethics or things like that. They all flow directly out of this fact that the crucified and risen one is the Lord, but the world does not yet know it. Um, people who ought to know it do not know it. There are powers that still dispute it. Um, and so, for instance, I was I was puzzling this out, actually, when I, I was preparing somebody for a baptism and I was trying to talk through, I don't think I did a very good job of it just yet, that um, with Kazamon's help that that ethical behavior or the moral behavior is not... Um, in Romans' perspective, primarily keeping either the old code or a new Christian code, but it is actually the manifestation of Christ's lordship over my life. And that is the, is the I don't know, the orientation of how we live in the world. Absolutely. And that also uh, kind of threads the needle between libertarian and, uh, uh, or antinomian readings of Paul on the one side and legalistic readings of Paul on the other side, because... It's not that for Paul, the law is wholly just and good. Romans is going to say that. And there's uh, the, the law, uh, if the law could be fulfilled, it would lead to righteousness. But in fact, it cannot. But there's a certain excess, a certain surplus in Christ's fulfillment of the law that cannot be contained by merely legal obedience. Legal obedience would certainly be kind of the sine qua non, the minimum. You know, so I can't go around murdering people and saying, but I'm righteous in Christ. Right. You know, I, can't, I, can't, I can't contradict the law outwardly in that manifest kind of way. <clears throat> but no law can prescribe or enumerate what it means to fulfill the, the self-giving act of Christ for us and therefore his lordship over us. Love always participates in this ethical surplus over against the prescribed works of the law. Right, right. And at the same time, it, it isn't total lawlessness that you can, like you said, you can excuse on the principle of being in Christ because Paul does see very clearly the palpable power of sin and death and all of its evil works, and he's not afraid to name them by name throughout the letter. So under this umbrella of the lordship of Christ and the revelation of the righteousness of God, for Paul, the, the apocalypse has to do with also its revelation to both Jews and Gentiles. And that's where the whole the whole book starts. So maybe we should kind of go at the beginning and move forward through that. So he... The, the argument begins with um, a pretty clear condemnation of, of Gentile sinfulness and, um, and ignorance. And even when they did know stuff, they didn't know it well enough and they didn't act on it where God was concerned. And so far as that goes, there's some startling and disturbing language there at the very beginning. But it seems that in Paul's time and for his readers, the more shocking thing would be how quickly he moves past Gentile sinfulness into Jewish sinfulness. Um, it's you know, you didn't really have to argue very hard that Gentiles didn't know God and behaved very badly. You could just look at the world around you, and that was pretty easy. But then a, a lot of Paul's argument here is the, um, as uh, Kazaman says, apocalyptic asserts universal sinfulness. And so this applies even to the people who know God and who have the law, and even those who strive with all of their being to keep the law, like Paul himself did. Because the, the, the righteousness of God according to these first several chapters of Romans, does not merely point out our obvious wickedness. It also criticizes us at our best. Uh, and that's, the, that's how you have to understand somewhat paradoxically the critique of, of the Jews in chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. They are not obviously Gentile sinners. They are not guilty of violating the, the, uh, the commandments in the gross way that Paul has portrayed the Gentiles. But in their possession of the law uh, and in their feel, sense that as possessors of the law, they are superior to the Gentiles, they boast before God. And this boasting before God is revealed. It's not, it's not manifest. It's something that has to be exposed and revealed. 
this boasting before God that shows that also in their goodness, in their better ethics, in their better behavior, the Jews, too, are alienated from the righteousness of God. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me the kind of, for lack of a better term, Lutheran spirituality that I was raised with and immersed with, immersed in, was really that, <laughs> the, the exposure and critique of a God, of me, by God, at my best, not actually at my worst. And that, logically, I was always set with the excellent Jews, not with the disgusting Gentiles, in biblical preaching. And, I mean, I don't know how much that is a... Um, it doesn't seem to me like it's a purely post-Holocaust development because it seems to me when I go to Luther, I read it all there that it, he he is he must be getting it from Romans is criticizing people at their spiritual best, not at their spiritual worst. I think that's right. Okay, well, um, we could go pretty deeply into this um, topic here, and especially where Paul really is breaking away from um, the Judaism of his world, the, re the developing rabbinic Judaism, especially in his assertion that circumcision is of no value. That is an extremely radical departure. Though I was struck, I was just curious, I went back and looked, and circumcision is basically not mentioned in the Gospels at all. And Luke, it just says that Jesus was circumcised according to the law, which fits with Luke's narrative. And um, and John, it's in chapter seven, just mentioned in passing. But for all the, the the arguments with the Pharisees that are developed in the in the Gospels, actually circumcision is not one of them. It comes up. It's important in, in Acts chapter fifteen when there are some of the Pharisaic party who believe in Jesus who say you still have to be circumcised to be saved. But obviously, this is a much much bigger deal in Paul's world than it is in the in the Synoptic or Johannine worlds. But so let's let's go on now from from that argument with uh, the Judaism uh, of well. Well, still of our day too, but of Paul's day about circumcision and into one that has continued to reverberate in intra-Christian arguments, which is the, how faith justifies. And that is what is developed in chapters three through three and four. So um, dad, why don't you kind of talk us through Paul's argument about why it is that faith is the thing that is the, the receptor of God's righteousness? It's very interesting here that faith is the microcosm of the macrocosmic claim of God the Creator for his fallen creation that's being apocalypsed, asserted and revealed in the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, and this, uh, here's another quotation from the commentary by Kazeman. As surely as justification loses its reality, unless it happens to the individual, Comma, just so surely it cannot remain an eschatological event unless it is the creator's grasping of his world and not of the individual alone. In the primacy of Christology over anthropology and cosmology, these two are included and Paul's eschatology is distinguished from ideology. Now that is a very uh, dense statement, but what it means is that the faith which justifies any human being is the individual, personal event of the gospel's apocalyptic assertion of God's sovereignty reaching out to reclaim the world from the usurping powers of sin and death. That, uh, and that horizon must remain in force, that what happens to me as an individual believer is through me God's claim upon my whole world. If you don't emphasize the personal focus of, of justifying faith, uh, Kazeman says it loses its reality and becomes an ideology. And this is the mistake I think that we're seeing so often in the contemporary American Protestant church in which um, a kind of political theology is supplanting the proclamation of the gospel as if the mere fact that God, there's something really screwed up with the world and God wants justice and it's up to us to do justice. And then we then start getting very partisan political sermons trying to articulate what that activism ought to be. Uh, there, the need for personal transformation, the per individual apocalypse of faith in this righteousness of God having laid hold of me and transformed me, that 
personal focus. That's the on-the-ground reality of, of, of what Paul's gospel is talking about. But it's not limited or confined to my personal transformation. In fact, it it goes through me to my entire world. That's what I think Kazeman is trying to say. Yeah, he says that the scope is as narrowed as each person to as broad as the entire cosmos. And you have to keep both of those in mind at all times. And I think it's it's good, as you say, that um, it, it unless it is pro me, you know, for me personally, then it's just abstract theory. And then Christianity becomes the ideology that I, or the, the team I just happen to play for. It doesn't, it, it's just the, the general assertion that God is good or God is just or God is loving or whatever. It actually has not succeeded in taking me personally out of my enslavement to the sin and the powers and setting me under the Lordship of Christ. And that's what is actually supposed to happen in faith. I was really struck. He, Kazaman says again and again, and, you know, somehow I had missed this all the times I'd read Romans before, but Paul really insists that the gospel is the power of salvation in Christ, and that the power right. is is emphasized again and again, and, you know, that's something I'm I'm familiar with from hanging out with uh, charismatics and Pentecostals who emphasize the power of God, the actual living power of God in your life, and um, so I had always thought of that as being, you know, something you got from other parts of the New Testament, but I was struck to see it's so central to the argument of Romans, even though in the background, as Paul is definitely um, modifying and correcting certain charismatic and enthusiastic, in his day, not our day, uh, charismatic and enthusiastic tendencies and how, how to read the power of God right in the actual life of the person and the church. And I think that it's very important to, uh, to connect that dunamis, that power of God, dunamis totheo in Romans, to the preaching of the gospel. Paul expects the proclamation of the gospel to be a powerful, personally transformative event, which as such, as you said, grasps me personally and through me reaches out to the whole world. And where does Paul locate the power? The power is in, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. So the gospel is understood to have this eventful, uh, effectual character. This causes changes in the world. And I think preachers who are listening to this ought to ask themselves, is my preaching of the gospel powerful? Is it an apocalyptic event, both in my delivery of it and in the reception of it for my people? Yeah, and that doesn't mean like bells and whistles and streamers and light shows necessarily. I mean, you know, they, no. they could serve the purpose. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> but that that's not what's meant by power. Is uh, you know the the stage show or whatever. What's actually meant is is I there seems to have been in the, in I don't know maybe since Kazaman or because of him in part. There's been this kind of revival um, in certain aspects of of Lutheranism anyway about the talking about the word as an event, uh, stressing that the word actually does something, like using um, J.L. Austin's ideas about about um, words, performative words, actually creating something when they are spoken. And that seems to be what both Paul and Kazaman are driving at here. I think so. It, it, event, uh, ereignis in German, I think is the word, ereignis, mm -hmm. event. Yeah, it's the... Uh, the character of the proclamation as an event. Right. And so it doesn't mean that you have to somehow like mystically or, you know, in a, in a, a vision or in a state of emotional hysteria or whatever, access some feeling about Christ's presence. Because for Paul, actually, it is declaring to a person, to a group of people that Christ is Lord and that he is the crucified and risen one. That actually is what is doing the work. So it's both, in, in a way, it's both very understated and very radical at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yes, it, it, the proclamation of Christ as the one who is given for us and therefore becomes our Lord in giving himself for us. That's the content of this event. So the proclamation is not bells and whistles. The proclamation is bringing that home in a concrete act of preaching.
Okay, so so then moving on from there, <laughs> just racing our way through Romans. Um, so here's another thing that really struck me uh, through with Kazamon's help about Romans is is I got the idea of the gospel as freedom from the power of death. That was pretty easy. But I was really interested in his argument that Paul is talking about freedom from the power of sin and that Paul is less interested in forgiveness than he is in manumission from from sin's lordship over our lives. And that, in fact, forgiveness doesn't seem to be that big of an issue for him, according to Kazemann. And that maybe is maybe uh, one of the more distinct differences from Luther, because Luther is is fairly focused on forgiveness, especially. And maybe it's his um, much longer experience of uh, backsliding Christians all through church history that made Luther more concerned about forgiveness than, than a, though it, it doesn't seem like Paul seems to believe that you were totally post-sin either. So can you develop for us, you know, what's going on here? What does it mean to be free from the power of sin? You know, I can do this by, again, by telling an anecdote about J. Lewis Martin and his teaching. Uh, I remember so vividly him pointing this, making this point to us that you very, I think forgiveness occurs in the Pauline correspondence once or twice and it had, I'm trying to remember exactly where it occurs, but the, even the very terminology, forgiveness of sins, is absent. And that's quite striking because in the synoptic gospels, that it's Jesus' forgiving sins that creates the scandal. Who is this to forgive sins? God alone forgives sins. Yeah, right? yeah. Right. And so what Martin's comment to us was that there's nothing... Some Paul doesn't wouldn't see anything wrong with Jesus forgiving sins, but he would regard it as too weak, too weak an expression, and, and perhaps just preliminary uh, to what came about as a result of Jesus's forgiving sins. Namely, they nailed that blasphemer to a tree, and, and that he might die accursed and uh, rejected by God for presuming to forgive sins. Though, so in his vindication, not merely is his act of forgiveness uh, vindicated, but he becomes the vindication uh, of the sinners of the world who now put their trust in him. Mm-hmm. So Ma- Martin kind of explained that, that uh, perhaps the synoptic Jesus uh, in his ministry forgives sins, but we must remember that his forgiving sins got him crucified. Mm-hmm. And that his resurrection is not simply, merely, it's not merely a approval of his forgiving sins. It's more than that. It's a vindication of him as the personification of reconciling or forgiving righteousness or something something like that. Which would suggest that it's absolutely essential to preach not only what Jesus preached and what Jesus did in his ministry, but Jesus after the fact as the crucified Christ and the risen Lord, and therefore that vindication and reconciliation that you stated. Come about, right, not simply by what he did in his earthly ministry, but by also by what he uh, received in his suffering and uh, did for us uh, both actively and as well as passively. Yeah. So, so that was Martin's comment. Forgiveness of sins is too weak a word because the apocalypse of the righteousness of God actually, and this is how Martin proposed to translate uh, 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 dikaio, the verb to justify, he said it rectifies us. It puts us in the right. It, it, stra- it straightens out what was crooked. And that's another way of thinking about the causal efficacy of the apocalypse of the righteousness of God. It it reaches into our sin-bound, sin-laden lives and straightens us out. If Luther's image was curvatus and say, curved into ourselves, the rectifying uh, righteousness of God uh, straightens us out and pulls us back up to an orientation of uh, faith in God and love for others. Okay, wow. Well, I have a whole bunch of questions to ask out of that. Let me see if I can organize them. Uh, So the first one then is um, an application question, briefly. So in church, we regularly have confession and forgiveness of sins. Why do we do that? And is that too weak for what is supposed to be going on, according to Paul? Well, that's a, that. I hope I don't have to go on a long excursion on that. It would t- take too long. But Kaseman, in his commentary on on Romans seven, 
the passage about the uh, good that I would, I do not, that which the, of the divided self so, and so forth. Caseman says basically the interpretation of this in Reformation theology reckons with something that Paul historically did not reckon with. Paul thought the world was about to come to an end. Paul thought the invading righteousness of God had seized Christians who no longer uh, let sin reign in their mortal bodies, but live in the power of the Spirit, free from sin, free for service. And so the persistence of sin in the life of the redeemed is not something that Paul reckoned with. And I think Kazeman's a little bit wrong about that on that particular point, but that's his argument in any case. The horizon is much shorter. The church isn't settling in for the long term. And Paul even thinks he's going to finish the Gentile missionary task once he gets to Spain. Right. And as I always, when I teach this point to students, I always say, aren't you glad Paul was wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Because we're here to talk about it as a result. (laughs) Well, and the the Petrine letters already are trying to solve that by saying, well, the reason why the world is still going is to give you time to repent. (laughs) So get on that. Right, exactly. Based on Romans 6, what the Reformation argued at its best was that there is a distinction to be made between sin that masters us that lords over us, and sin that is mastered, sin mastering and sin mastered. And the claim is that the uh, conscientious uh, Christian, justified by faith, lives in the power of the Spirit as a master over sin. Now, that doesn't mean he never commits, she never commits a sin. It simply means that when sin occurs, uh, they quickly realize they've gone wrong and repent and uh, seek mercy and forgiveness. Thus you have the brief order for confession and forgiveness in uh, Lutheran liturgies, right, that acknowledge that this is an ongoing battle. That, uh, But it's addressed, this brief order is addressed to Christians who in principle are no longer mastered by sin, but in virtue of their baptism they have, and living in the power of the Spirit, they are masters of sin, which means practically when they, when they fall, when they sin, they know it, they sorrow, they grieve over it, they repent of it, they make restitution sin master. Right, right. All right. Well, that's, that's a, as you suggested, a very deep discussion. We'll have to pursue it some other time. And I'll, I'll have to let my other questions go for now for the pressure of time. But before we leave um, Romans 6, another thing that um, stood out to me is that um, aligning baptism, which um, seems already by Paul's, you know, early in Paul's career, baptism is undisputed. Like everyone who is Christian gets baptized. It is done. There's, it's just not even, we don't actually hear that much about it because it's so universal already in Christian practice. But it seems that Paul innovates in making, in aligning our Christian baptism with Jesus' death and burial. And I remember when we talked about Mark last year, you know, Jesus talks about the baptism with which I am to be baptized. There seems to be some faint correspondence or overlap there in that conceptuality. But I was really struck by that, this um, innovation in aligning, uh, on Paul's part, aligning baptism and and death with Christ, because actually that was the primary motif, again, in my Lutheran upbringing, that the way I thought of baptism is, in baptism, I died with Christ. You know, I've already gone through my first and worst death. It's over. A second biological death is mild in comparison to the baptismal death. Yeah, I think you can actually see in my systematic theology, I devote a lot of attention to the various theologies of baptism in historic Christianity. And there were various ideas of what baptism is. The, you know, it's a water purification rite, right? So that we're like we get dirty with dirt and we take a bath to clean up. So we get dirty with our sins and we take this bath symbolically to wash away our sins. That's, that's a, a model that I think is very, very much alive in the, theolo- the theology of purity in the in Roman Catholic tradition. Yeah, well, it's on the ascendancy in liberal Protestantism, too, I think, because it's kind of generic and nature-y and, you know, like, oh, water bath and remember your baptism every time you wash your face and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, it gets a little... Um, gets a little... Um, and anemic. Anemic, yes, yeah. And then there's, you know, in Calvinism, there's the idea of the water bath as the 
non-literal circumcision, right. which uh, fulfills and replaces circumcision as the sign of adoption into the covenant. Right. It seems to me that Paul would be really angry about that because he so absolutely wants to cut off, pardon the pun, any notion of this uh, legal um, fulfillment of a right in order to acquire righteousness. Yeah, I think that is a, a problem. And, of course, the ambivalence towards rights in Reformed traditions uh, is a reflection of that as well. Well, why do we do it? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a right, but it really it really doesn't do anything. But we still do it because we're supposed to do well, it. Well, and it shifts into certain kind of, of uh, very non-sacramental Protestantism into my act of obedience rather than God's act of claiming me. Right, exactly. Uh, and then, you know, I do, do want to say this. I did discover that of all the 16th century options, the school of thought that's closest to Luther on baptism is death with Christ and resurrection in him is that of Menno Simmons. Menno interprets baptism very strictly as dying and rising with Christ. Uh, and, and other differences aside, I think that uh, that similarity is worth noting. And that seems to emerge very directly out of Romans 6. Okay, well then let's get to Romans 7. So this is one we've we've mentioned in passing before. I remember my uh, aforementioned seminary class, we were strictly forbidden to write a paper on Romans 7. We were allowed to do any other part of the book of Romans, but uh, the professor would not let us write on Romans 7, just uh. said it was it was too much of a mare's nest. And I had already chosen <laughs> that exact passage for my senior sermon um, <laughs> and was very nervous as a result, but um, I remember remember, you know, I, I, I simply asserted in my sermon, this is what Christians go through. This is what we experience. And it seemed to me that there was a lot of um, relief and gratitude for someone naming that reality so plainly, at least in the context of worship, if not in the context of exegesis class. So anyway, but having now read through Kazamon's argument as to why it is not all right, so I'll state here, this is the argument that Romans 7 is not actually a Christian confession. Kazamon says the first part logically can't apply to anyone but Adam because it's um, impossible to know sin and not know the law um, in some sense. And then the second part of Romans 7 shifts over to my pre-Christian existence, but I am looking back on it as a Christian and recognizing the state of slavery that I was in, um, especially in my aspirations to keep the law. And this seems to be also the expression of the pious Jew, though um, pious Jews of the time would not generally have b agreed with Paul that it was impossible to keep the law and that the law led to despair. That is definitely his Paul's Christian innovation over against standard rabbinic teaching on the law. And then the final part of it where it says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Uh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, or however that goes. And so that is like the, the culminating moment in which finally Christ has claimed me and released me. I have been set free from the power of sin. I'm no longer at slavery. So that's the argument for Romans 7 not being reflective of Christian reality. Now, like you just said, Paul was not um, settling in for the long term, though I would agree with you, Paul was had to be very sharply aware of the sin of Christian people, uh, CF Cor Corinthian correspondence. Um, but anyway, I know that, uh, tell me what you think. I mean, do you accept this general argument or do you assert Romans 7 is also, it, either Paul intends it as, as Christian reality or that we are are legitimate in asserting it as Christian reality, even if Paul didn't intend it that way. Well, I think that if that if Kazeman's right about what Paul intended there, Paul sure did a lousy job of telling us what he was trying to do. <laughs> right, right, especially shifting over to all the I pronouns. Right, right. I, I mean, it, it to me, it's a totally counter uh, counterintuitive reading. It's just such a shock to hear after let's sin therefore have no dominion in your mortal bodies uh, right the conclusion of Romans 6 that you're living in the power of the spirit uh, so Paul exhorts let's sin have no dominion okay so the Christian the spiritual person says I affirm the law of God in my mind it's righteous holy and good I will it I want to do it so it's precisely this spirit, uh, endowed person who now has mastered sin, uh, uh, who is now reflecting upon the fact that, in fact, I discover another principle within me, 
that that militates against the spirit. And elsewhere in Paul's letters, we know this to be the antinomy between the spirit and the flesh. And now I think all of that can be mapped onto the microcosm uh, of the macrocosmic conflict of God with the powers of sin, death, and the devil. The Christian person has become a divided self because the Christian in person is uh, and in miniature is the battleground between God and the power of sin. Uh, and this battle is being fought in the Christian's own existence. Uh, I don't think that that uh, is in any way contrary to Kazeman's basic reading of the relationship uh, between the apocalyptic claim on all creation and its concretization in the life of the individual. And if you then just locate Romans 7 in between the baptism chapter 6 and the cosmic uh, reconcil- the cosmic consummation uh, in Romans 8, where in Romans 8, you know, it begins with the travail, the whole earth is in travail waiting for the revelation of the glorious liberty of the children of God. The groaning and sighing, and we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies, right? So this is precisely the predicament of the Christian who is suspended between the already of baptism and the not yet of resurrection. Right. Yeah. So this really struck me. I mean, this already not yet is a, a, I think by now, very well established rule of thumb for apocalyptic reading of the New Testament and Paul especially. Between this already and not yet, the reality of the Christian is not necessarily one that we like to say of being healed or made whole, that there's probably some truth to that vis-a-vis, especially a previous pagan life or a lost life, horribly sinful, whatever, but that actually the Christian is the new battleground and that, like you said, we have a divided self precisely because we are materially and spiritually connected to the world of sin and the power of sin, but the Spirit of God has come and claimed us through our baptism and now the fight has broken out on very local territory. It's no longer, you know, the boom I hear off in the distance of the cannons firing, but it's actually going on right inside of me. And so that is my my actual experience. And um, Kazamon makes a lot of points in this book, which I, I had never fully grasped before, and I, I should have working with the in ecumenical dialogue with Pentecostals, but how much of the subtext of what Paul is dealing with is is the charismatics, especially the ones he encountered in Corinth. And so apparently one of the issues there is that they were they believed they were so whole and so healed in the new life and the spirit that some of them thought that they hadn't even that they weren't gonna die at all, or that the resurrection had already happened, and that they were were totally not not just beyond the power of sin, but they were just beyond sin and they were beyond death and everything. And therefore, they could also leave behind the crucified Christ. And so it seems to me that what um, if Kazamon's right about this, then what's going on also in Romans 7 is saying it isn't already, but it's still a not yet. And you are not you are not so far beyond that you are uh, beyond the battleground that Jesus own crucified body was. You are still that that battleground and crucified body, too. You know, and that's exactly the segue between the end of seven and the beginning of eight. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? I consider not the sufferings of this present age worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. That's the segue, right? That's the, the not yet. Yes, God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that victory is on the way, but it has not yet fully arrived. So that's why we groan and travail with the whole creation. Yeah, yeah. And so then that's interesting because that even though I, I think we have heard some about the spirit, I mean, really the, the apex this is leading to in chapter 8 is Paul's great disquisition on the spirit or the Holy Spirit, as we know the name from, from other parts of the New Testaments, and that this is really the freedom from the law, the freedom from the accusation of law, the law, the works of the law, the enslavement to sin, and in its place we are adopted as children of God, and we have hope. And again, we don't have the total reality of victory now. It's not the victorious life that a certain kinds of prosperity preachers like to assert, but definitely the promise of victory, but the promise still um, awaits its final confirmation. Yeah, and it's God's victory for us, not our victory or our victory, let alone our victory for God. It's God's victory for us. That's what's to be awaited 
in patient faith. Yeah. And it seems to me that this is why Romans has been so extremely potent to Christians over the years, because we really, it, it's so wrong to, to put pious Jews um, now or in Paul's time in this separate category of particular self-righteousness or anything like this. This is so recognizable as the ongoing struggle, even for Christians who, like like the Corinthians or, or others closer to home, want to claim the, the total victory, the total mastery of sin, and really my victory for God that God rewards me for, rather than my being the, the empty and open hands waiting to receive God's victory and its confirmation. Right. We are the trophies not the contestants. That's a good way of putting it. Um, do you want to say anything else about Paul's doctrine of the Spirit here? Yes, uh, the, the Spirit intercedes with us with sighs and groanings too deep for words. Caseman tends to kind of uh, equate the Spirit and Christ, the risen Christ. Uh, there's a tendency in him to say that the Spirit is simply the present uh, uh, manifestation of the risen Christ or something like that. Uh, and I think we have to be a little cautious there because I think the Spirit comes from and comes according to the crucified and risen Lord Christ. Uh, but the Spirit is distinguishable in Paul from uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, how so? Well, Christ is the gift, but the faith to receive him is the work of the Spirit. Those are distinct things. The gospel is the apocalypse of Christ's self-donating act, which creates this new, re reorganizes creatures on the earth and creates this new relationship to God, revealing God in his saving righteousness. But who receives that? Who believes that other than the person in whom the Spirit of Christ has given the grace to receive the gift, which is Christ himself? So I think there's a, a, a twofold grace here. There's the grace of Christ's self-giving and his claim of lordship on us, but there's also the grace to entrust oneself to it which Paul attributes to the Spirit. Yeah, and that's exactly how Luther structures the second and third articles of the Creed in his catechisms, which is Christ in, in Article 2 does this for you, for me, and then in Article 3, and then I receive it in, in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that I do, but that the Spirit does in me and through me and for me and makes me into someone who can receive this word of Christ. Yeah, and so the, the Spirit then is the believer's uh, consolation in all times of severe trial and testing because it's the Spirit who authored and created faith from the beginning which is ever interceding on behalf of the embattled believer. Uh, and that is the profoundest consolation one can have in times of trial, when one feels, humanly speaking, that faith has slipped entirely away. Right, right. And uh, and Kazeman points out that for, for Paul, charismatic gifts like prophecy or speaking in tongues, they are specifically directed towards the embattled community of those who bear the crucified Christ in their bodies through baptism. And therefore, it's the, the ongoing work of the Spirit to console and uplift people. So it's not meant to be manifestations of power as such or proof that God exists or of someone's, you know, distinguishing brilliance at doing religious stuff, but it's really directed towards this sustenance and consolation of the embattled. Bearing witness to our spirits that we are indeed the children of God, and that you have to then imagine a trial where it feels like for all the world I'm anything but a child of God. <laughs> Right, yeah. I believe that by my own understanding or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel. Or believe that I am a beloved child of God. Yeah, right, right. Okay, well, we're going to come back to um, Romans 9 through 11 in the next episode, which I'll say more about in a second. But just to wrap up, we're just going to skip straight on to, to 12 through 16 very quickly. So we've already mentioned that um, 12, 13, 14, and 15 are are basically Paul's call not to a new Christian law, but to the ways in which we manifest. And maybe I should better say we are the sites of Christ's lordship in the world through our actions, 
our behaviors, our interactions with other people. And so we have both kind of, Kazeman says, a kind of broad exhortation in, in chapters 12 and 13. Uh, just by the by, since we've been talking about temporal authority, Kazeman argues that Romans 13 is actually really directed towards charismatics <laughs> and not, um, it's not meant to be a permanent statement of, of um, quietistic obedience to the powers that be. But that it's really uh, talking about um, people who are so uh, ecstatic in the spirit as to put themselves beyond all forms of law, all forms of of wider bond, um, bondedness to the the sinful community, and therefore it's the place for them to again manifest the lordship of Christ actually vis a vis the political powers. I found that actually quite helpful for trying to puzzle out Romans thirteen. Very good. Yeah, yeah. and then in and um, fourteen and fifteen, it's the whole question over the weak and strong, and you know the one who only eats vegetables. I think that's really funny. A weak person only eats vegetables. <laughs> and then and then the strong who eats meat, even offered to idols. And uh, the interesting thing that comes out about that is actually both the weak and the strong are wrong. They are incorrect because both of them are trying to force the other side into their point of view. And in neither case is are their eyes fixed on Christ and being clean in their conscience vis-a-vis Christ. And that just, man, that has so many ramifications for how we live now now and on so many levels, and not just being a vegetarian or a carnivore, but this um, need of the weak to capture everyone else's conscience and the need of the strong to forcibly liberate everybody else's conscience. Actually, they're both wrong. And you can see this, again, Luther must have uh, drunk this very deeply because you can see the balance he's always trying to strike in his Reformation preaching, you know, uh, you know, protect the weak, but don't let them become the new, the new, um, dictators and, you know, push back the strong, but not to the point that the strong give away the whole gospel in the process. What Kiesman doesn't, I think, develop sufficiently in the commentary is the importance of the uh, uh, Greek word senatus, which is conscience, and how important the term conscience is for Paul. Uh, if, if you did a just a word study, you would see how frequently it, 20 or 30 occurrences of the word conscience in the genuine Pauline letters. And embedded in Romans 13 is the exhortation, therefore obey not simply out of fear, but for conscience sake. And so I think that would be another way of talking about how the, uh, the submitting to the governing authorities is a submission within the providing of God for the preservation of the creation in view of the coming lordship of Christ. That would be a conscientious act of obedience uh, to the governing authorities, not a servile one. And that entails, of course, the possibility of conscientious disobedience when the governing authorities uh, transgress their divine mandate. Right, right, yeah. Paul certainly wouldn't say, lay down Christ's lordship over your life for conscience sake in order to obey the authorities. That would not fly at right. all, right? Right, exactly. All right. Yeah. Well, there's some really interesting reconstruction about of uh, 15 and 16, especially Paul's motivation for writing to the Romans, his plans, uh, possible background of conflict with the Palestinian church and so forth. And then about chapter 16, um, Kazeman, I don't know if scholarship still agrees with this, but Kazeman says 16 probably is um, not authentic to Romans itself, but is definitely authentic to Paul and maybe just got attached to Romans at some point along. And I, I don't have a a stake in that game one way or another. But just two things I would like to to um, draw out of 16 is one is that it begins with this endorsement of Phoebe, the deaconess or deacon, and just um, actually throughout all of the greetings of Romans 16, there is a, there are so many women and they are such key players in the church. And, um, you know, again, obviously that usually happens in, in more apocalyptic or liminal times, women come out and then as things settle down into normalcy, they kind of tend to retreat or be pushed back. I don't know which way is more dominant to the typical and important role of um, childbearing. But women are really important here. And um, in particular, I want to lift up Junia, uh, which in many Bibles is still listed as Junius. There is a great book called Junia, the First Woman Apostle by a New Testament scholar named Eldon J. Epp, in which he shows that Junia, as a female name, is very well attested. It's all over the place in ancient Rome, archaeologically and in documents and so forth. There is not one single instance of the male name Junius, which many of our Bibles still have in its place. That just was not a 
Roman name at all. And that up through about, oh, let's say historical, critical, biblical scholarship in the 18th, 19th century, everybody knew that this was a woman who was prominent among the apostles. Um, and Kazaman, who who doesn't, um, who assumes it's a man, actually, he says prominent among the apostles means that Junia and Andronicus, her partner, were definitely apostles and considered apostles. And so he makes that argument apart from thinking that it's a woman or having that interfere with his judgment. Um, even John Chrysostom, not famous for loving women, <laughs> said, wow, she must have been quite a quite an impressive person to win the title apostle from Paul, of all people. But then when, when the modern scholarship came along and knew better, they said, well, a woman can't be an apostle. So they actually changed translations to say Junius. And it's only in late 20th century onward translations that Junia as a female has been restored to her proper place of apostleship. So for <laughs> obvious reasons, I think that's pretty cool. And I uh, would like to uh, encourage all of you out there, if you have an S at the end of Junia's name in your Bibles, just put an X through it. It's Junia. <laughs> Preach on, sister. That's right. Okay, well, that is going to wrap it up for our whirlwind tour through most of Romans. But in our next uh, episode, we are going to take on Romans 9 through 11, specifically through the lens of the terrible and painful question of Luther and the Jews. listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.